Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drift. How you doing, Dave? Doing well. Middle of September, eight days into the school year. It's been great here. About 60 to 80 of us gather each morning and do devotions together. So really, it's been a neat experience um, just starting the day off, just thinking about what we're doing and then um, seeing people go off into their classrooms and seeing all these young folks come in and uh, knowing that they're going to be tended to uh, well uh, by by this group. So yeah, it's, it's a really neat experience. Uh, my, my first time addressing... Uh, uh, K through two and three through five student groups and, and their parents. But um, I mean, the message remains the same, right? That we want to glorify God in our calling. So it's a, it's a really neat opportunity. And I feel humbled to be able to lead the school. How's uh, Kings? Do they walk in line like uh, ducklings, like here at, uh, <laughs> at Geneva uh, or not, not quite. quite so orderly probably, but, but they have their own merits and, you know, we've gotten off to a good start. It's been nice to be teaching alongside all the administrative work, that I do and a good group of students. So that's, that's been fun. That's energizing at the end of the day on Tuesday and Friday, good reminder of, of the rest of academic life that I've set aside for the most part for this year. Yeah. Around here, uh, of course, it's almost officially the end of summer and there, there's a little bit of a fall in the air, at least in the mornings, we've got uh, still pretty warm in the afternoon, but you know, it's, you, you're starting to think about, the coming of fall and and the colors and all that. Uh, today happens to be our oldest daughter's 14th birthday. So we've got some fun celebrations ahead as well. That's awesome. Yeah. I heard a joke last night on the, on the uh, seasonal front that in Texas, there are four seasons, three summers in August. Okay. So, <laughs> and, and usually when it's really hot right? when it's really hot. So um, <laughs> it's, just, it's pretty good. We were hoping in the nineties again today, but it really has yeah. been, been, quite pleasant. Uh, there's, there's such a thing as the air conditioning. So you, you go inside, but uh, you, so in administration, you're doing all of that, but you still manage to put together your fantasy football team and defeat me in, in week one uh, by 25 points. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was happy with the team. You know, I, I've got a pretty thin team at the moment. I, I drafted some guys projecting that they would become stars and starters later in the season. And so they're not much value to me now. So, you know, I've got, I've got my 10 starters and they're going to have to carry the load in these early weeks, but yeah, they had a good first week. Um, you know, your team did quite well, really overall comparatively, but good to get the first W in the books. And I know you have a few lineup regrets. We can always look back on that and say, if I'd optimized my lineup, what might've been. Sure. Yeah. I made a mistake by inserting Fitzpatrick for Herbert and, and not inserting Corey Davis uh, for McLaurin. So Fitz tragic, anyway, I think not Fitz it was, magic. it yeah. was, it was Fitz tragic on Sunday. That, that's right. But um, I got the NFL Sunday ticket, which I had my free one week trial. And I'm thinking this was really nice. I, 
I didn't have to go to a loud um, tavern and listen to the Patriots play among 17 other teams. So I'm just trying to, you know, weigh the, weigh the cost of having yeah. you know, the ability to watch the game at home and, and, and then asking um, the person who's in charge of our household, whether that's possible, perhaps as a birthday present later in the month. All right. Well, let's turn our attention to Aristotle. We're wrapping up book two of the politics today as Aristotle gives us some more insights and reflections on some of the competing regimes of his day. So I'd like to break down our discussion into two parts. The, the first part is what he talks about uh, in chapters 9 through 11, where he goes through the defects of the Spartan, Cretan, and finally Carthaginian constitution. And then the second part of what he has to say about uh, Athens and what happened there. And I think that everything in this section of the book hinges on something that one of our former professors, Judy Swanson, uh, suggests, which is the question of, is it more effective to craft laws or to craft regimes? And how ought you to look at the crafting of a specific law within the broader parameters of the crafting uh, of a regime? And he'll say right at the beginning of this discussion, the first question we have to ask is whether any particular law is good or bad when compared with the perfect state. And then secondly, whether or not it's consistent with the idea and character that the lawgiver has given to the regime. So is it good or bad? And is it consistent with the crafting of the regime? So in the well-ordered state, he argues, citizens should have leisure to not only provide for their daily wants, but to also think about what is best, what leads to flourishing, et cetera. And he starts with the Spartan regime and he says the following, it has multiple defects. The first is it has a large slave population that it always has to tend to. The second is that because it's always at war, uh, the women who are at home uh, tend to live lives that are more extravagant or licentious, uh, even though uh, Lycurgus, the lawgiver of Spartan, has tried to um, contain this element within the Spartan regime. The emphasis of his discussion of, of, of Sparta is that it's so conditioned, the regime is so crafted toward war that in peacetime, the regime suffers or, or falls apart. So many different defects that he'll go over here in chapter nine of book two. What do you make of this discussion of the Spartan regime, Matt? It's one of the interesting arguments that Aristotle makes throughout the politics that the purest form of a bad regime is worse than a corrupt form of that bad regime. <laughs> so if you have the wrong end in view, if your ultimate purpose is war, not peace, then to craft a regime that's perfectly oriented toward war will actually make things worse than if you mix warlike elements with those that would be inconsistent with that purpose, but might actually help to promote and maintain the peace. So this is why Aristotle, as we're going to see in book three coming up, spends so much time trying to understand the nature of justice in each regime and to point out the flaws of the account of justice in, in the imperfect regimes, uh, because the best way to escape the flaws of those regimes is not to purify them, not, not to make democracy more democratic or oligarchy more oligarchic, but to mix democratic and oligarchic elements in order to produce something that's more balanced and, and tends more in the direction of the common good. So in some, we, we judge whether regimes are good or not 
not based upon movies like the 300, where we see a picture of the Spartan regime <laughs> in action, where a specific virtue, which is kind of that manly uh, militaristic engagement of the soldier. But the, the regime includes that element where it has to fight a war, but that element where it has to be at peace. And a true perfect ordering takes into account military matters, but the, the military is a means to the end of the peace of the regime, not the reverse. And this is what happened in Sparta, I think, to the detriment of, of the Spartan people. So here it's interesting. He had been critical of Plato and Socrates earlier on in, in his commentary, but he says that Plato gets this right, that you can't just be virtuous in one thing. You can't be virtuous in terms of how you handle military matters. Virtue involves the entire understanding of the perfect ordering of, of a society or community. So let's move on to the second commentary that he makes, which is a commentary on the Cretan constitution, which he says very much resembles the Spartan constitution. Uh, they do one thing, however, better than the Spartans. Uh, if you uh, do not do your job well uh, as a Cretan leader, you can be expelled by a conspiracy of your own colleagues or of private individuals. And you're also allowed to resign before the term of your office has expired. So one way to have a correction for a regime that's always prepared for war is to enable members of a political community through such a thing as, I mean, Gavin Newsom to survive last night, correct? To take someone who may not be doing their office correctly and remove them for office or have them um, resign before their term is expired. This is going to do some good map, but is, is it going to correct really the major deficit of the Spartan regime? Well, it, it can't entirely because, again, as, as you've been saying, and as Aristotle has been pointing out, uh, the, the root of the problem is an incorrect account of virtue. You know, and it's interesting, historically, I mean, uh, you read Augustine on Rome, for example, and he says that the, the willingness of Romans to sacrifice for, for Rome was a display of the most splendid vice. Right? There, there's something powerful and compelling uh, about individuals that are willing to fight for the, the motherland and, and to die for the motherland. And there's something admirable. That's why people love the movie 300. Right? You, you see the, the willingness of individuals to sacrifice and to stand in the gap and protect their community. And, and that remains something worthy of admiration in our own day, of course. And we properly honor those who sacrifice a Memorial Day and look at Veterans Day. And we think about the sacrifice and the willingness to sacrifice of those who serve in the military. Um, but, but if that military virtue is the virtue around which the entire community is oriented, then you've got a problem uh, because now there's, there's no rest. Uh, there's no opportunity for peace. There's no real progress toward justice and, and an overcoming of faction internally. And the kind of warlike mentality that, that's inspired by that is not really conducive ultimately to the common good. Now, I think you know, there's, there's, there's questions in our own day about whether perhaps we've gone too far in the opposite direction, right? That the military has, has been taken over, at least at the elite level, by those who have bought into various forms of progressive ideology and have really lost the uh, inherent function of the military as, as, as the fighting machine that's purpose is to defend the country. Uh, and that there's other political agendas that are being pursued, at least by 
some of the senior leadership uh, of the various branches of the military. So this is an interesting conversation about how you have a military that does military things well without that dominating the regime and orienting the regime toward conquest rather than peace and justice. And here, I think in this discussion, he's foreshadowing a, a later discussion, which becomes central to his whole commentary on regimes. And that is this, this important distinction. You mentioned it in your, in your response just then, that does the regime, is the regime's end the common good? Or is it the particular advantage of a subset of people within that society? And is the regime, secondly, ruled by one individual, the few, or the many? In the case of Sparta and of Crete, the few rule. And as long as the few rule in a way that tends toward the common good, and certainly defending the regime would do that, then it's a, a good thing. But the few can be corrupted also. The few who are military men can be corrupted and tend thereafter to care about their own good. So there's nothing in being warlike that prevents you from experiencing the excesses of oligarchy, the excesses of the few ruling for their own advantage. And we wouldn't assume that. We'd assume that th those people who were brave warriors in battle would come home right, and continue to think about the best of the regime uh, thereafter. So this is why when, when he moves to the Carthaginian regime in chapter 11, something's happening in Carthage that's not happening in Sparta or Crete. He writes, the Carthaginians are also considered to have an excellent form of government. And he says, the superiority of their constitution is proved by the fact that the common people remain loyal to the constitution the Carthaginians have. So they don't rebel and they've never been under the rule of a tyrant. So there's something, something happening within Carthage with regard to the, how its regime is formed, where the few have a notion of what the common good is and the many have a notion of what the common good is. And Aristotle will go on to tell us why the few and the many buy into this idea of the common good those who are elected to office in Carthage are elected primarily because of their merit. So something to merit that holds the regime together and gives it a cohesion. Now, that won't be perfect in the Carthaginian case, but there's something that holds it together. When the, when the best are elected to office and they tend to the well-being of the few and the many, you're moving towards a more optimal or ideal regime. One of the things that Aristotle does in these chapters rather systematically is point out different elements in these regimes that promote oligarchy versus aristocracy. And so this is, of course, historically one of the, the great tensions in any regime of the few. Who, who are the few in most historical instances? Uh, they're not merely individuals who maybe are well-educated or individuals who have some superior qualities of virtue. They, they may have those to some degree or, or maybe to a substantial degree, but they're also often a landed gentry, uh, an elite social class, a, a group of rich defined in some particular way for that community. And so just to get back to the point that you were making earlier, and, and really this is, as we've said before, where a Christian understanding of human nature is, is so valuable, just because an individual has education or has certain merits that might draw them properly to office, 
they also have interests. They have interests. And that causes them sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally to miss the mark of the common good and sometimes perhaps to misunderstand the common good, pursue what they think is the good of all when it turns out to only be the good of their class, their group, or sometimes quite explicitly to use their power to benefit those who are like them. So I, I appreciate as Aristotle works through this that he shows in, in particular applications how the law can turn in an oligarchic way and how the law can be turned back if properly organized in an aristocratic way where it's true merit rather than just riches that leads a person to higher office. And here on that question, the Carthaginians are able to overcome the more evil tendencies of oligarchy and a hyper uh, self-interestedness in wealth by, by sending those individuals who are like that off to start other colonies. So they have a little release valve for those individuals. All right, go, you're this element within our population that's tending to oligarchic, go start a colony, go, go, go enrich yourself somewhere else uh, rather than here at home, which of course is going to have its own problems later on because you can only do that uh, for so long before the actual regime itself at home is corrupted. So uh, imperial overstretch or, or kind of send your, your um, bad apples away, uh, likewise won't work for you. Uh, but I think you hear I, it's helpful. I think it would be helpful for our audience, especially those who haven't read Aristotle's politics before, just to remember what we're talking about here with these regimes. He's going to say more about it in further discussions, but there are six basic types of regimes. The rule of one person for the common good, which is kingly rule. The rule of one person for their own interest, tyranny. The rule of the few, for the common good, that's aristocracy, that's what he's after. The corruption of that, which is the rule of a few for the interest of the few, which is oligarchy. And finally, the rule of the many for the common good, what he calls constitutional government. And then the rule of the many for the good of the many, what he calls democracy. So if you're keeping this in mind here, as he's critiquing these oligarchic regimes, he's saying that Sparta misses, Crete misses, but Carthage has some element within it that tends more towards aristocracy and the common good because of merit. But even it in the long run is going to suffer uh, from the excesses of, of oligarchy, which I think brings us to the, the main point of, of this discussion um, as Professor Swanson would, would lead us, which is what do you do when you come across a regime and you want to alter it in a way to make it better? You could have the problem that regime is just organized you know, front and center in the wrong way, but is there a way to calibrate through laws regimes and make them better? And, and here he brings up in chapter 12, uh, the example of the Athenian Solon, who was able to, through changing laws a little bit, improve the Athenian regime. What he says about Solon is very informative on this this discussion of how you calibrate. He writes at the beginning of chapter 12, of those who have treated of governments, some have never taken any part at all in public affairs, but have passed their lives in a private station. About most of them, what was worth telling has already been told. But as to Solon, he is thought by some to have been a good legislator who put an end to the exclusiveness of the oligarchy, emancipated the people, established the Athenian democracy and harmonize the different elements of the state. So what he gave is the, the many some role in Athenian government. 
the courts of law in Athens he made so that they were formed out of the citizens. But what Aristotle says here is that Solon's goal here was not to democratize the Athenian regime, but to make it constitutional. Other Athenian leaders after Solon will take the regime in a more democratic fashion and turn it as demagogues into something that is to its detriment. But Solon, because he cared about particular laws and realized the power of making particular changes, aimed to make the Athenian regime better. The lesson for us, Matt, as we look at American politics in the 21st century, and as we look at American political history over the last three or four centuries, what movements in politics have worked with particular changes to create something more optimal? What movements, on the other hand, have had these wide-ranging visions of justice that have to be implemented immediately that have led to terrible results? So how do you make the American regime better? I think what Aristotle is telling us from this discussion of chapters 9 through 12 is you have to work with what you have, have a sense as to what the ideal or optimal is, and try through specific laws or particular laws to get more toward that optimal. But if you think you're just going to flip things upside down and make them something better, you are, you're truly um, missing the point on how effective political change is done. Yeah, I mean, you were asking about the different movements over the course of American history. And one of the ways that uh, the conservative movement has been understood, an attempt to, to reform uh, within the boundaries of of the principles of the regime, as you were saying, to make to make it a, a more just, um, a better framed version of the regime that you have available to you. And of course, the Constitution establishes a broad framework within the boundaries of which one one can act. You can amend the Constitution; that's a bigger project. But but most reform happens under the Constitution. Uh, and as you move along, of course, you have the progressive movement that emerges in the late 19th century and early 20th century that has, right from the very beginning, an entirely different vision. And this is what you see, for example, in Woodrow Wilson, before he was president, long before he was president, he was an academic. And his dissertation, in essence, for his PhD was a, was a book called Congressional Government. And in it, he critiques the whole structure of the American regime. He says this, the separation of powers system is the problem, not the solution. Now, now recognize how significant a claim that is. Without separation of powers, according to Madison, you have tyranny. And yet Wilson says, no, it's the separation of powers system, that, that dynamic tension between the executive branch and the legislative branch in particular, that is the cause of all our troubles. And the solution for that, according to according to Wilson, is a parliamentary style system where the executive branch is led by the same person that leads the legislative branch. You think about how the prime minister functions in England. And so you break down that separation, you can get things done. And that institutionally is the first step toward the massive reforms that the progressive movement aimed at accomplishing, say in the first third or so of the 20th century, as they wanted to centralize and bureaucratize the regime in pursuit of, of egalitarian purposes and, and really a, a reshaping of the economic and political life of the American people. And you compare Wilson here with, with Calvin Coolidge, and he gives a Declaration of Independence address 150 years 
from the founding and, and says the following, it is not so much then for the purpose of undertaking to proclaim new theories and principles that this annual celebration is maintained, but rather to reaffirm and reestablish those old theories and principles, which time and the unerring logic of events, the unerring logic of events have demonstrated to be sound. Amid all the clash of conflicting interests, amid all the welter of partisan politics, every American can turn for solace and consolation to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States with the assurance and confidence that those two great charters of freedom and justice remain firm and unshaken. Whatever perils appear, whatever dangers threaten, the nation remains secure in the knowledge that the ultimate application of the law of the land will provide an adequate defense and protection. With that at the forefront as a definition of what our common good is, yes, circumstances may change, but we have it to look back on and we have 150 year history right, to celebrate as we move forward. So a, a very different approach than, than Wilson in this case. Uh, and Coolidge shows that he understands the American regime and he understands what his role is as leader in 1926. But I, I think, Matt, almost 100 years after that, we've had many leaders who don't even understand the beginning principles of why the American regime came into being, never mind they, they reject that regime today. Uh, hence, the laws will not be calibrated well. The laws may lead you into a, a, a really bad place uh, quickly because they're not thought of in terms of how organically you arrived at the point that you, you did in history. Yeah, and I think you know to lay this out in its most fundamental terms, it really comes back to the question, are the principles of the American founding good? Because if they are, then the Coolidge argument is, is absolutely on point. We ought to be looking back to those principles, reforming toward those principles, purifying the regime in light of those principles. Now, if Wilson's right and, and they're wrong and there's some fundamental injustice at the root of them, well, then let's apply Aristotle to this. In this case, we shouldn't be reforming toward those principles, but reforming away from those principles. So this is really the the deep investigation that we have to take up. And as you're saying, Dave, uh, the problem today is that few are willing to actually do that. Few, few are willing to entertain the possibility that a certain set of political principles might be true as such. Uh, and if they are, they're not all that interested in investigating what those principles might be and, and giving a historically grounded, responsible reading, say, of the principles of the American founding and comparing those to the principles of a, of a Wilson or the progressive movement or other alternatives that have been put forward over the course of the last two centuries. Well, we have five years left until the 250th anniversary. So it's 2021. So we have five years to do this study and to take it up and, and to ask that important question. Are these principles right? Uh, are they wrong? Uh, are they somewhat right, somewhat wrong? But that's a great discussion to have because that takes it out of a warfare between personalities and turns it into the question of what the common good is, which I think is what Aristotle is after here at the end of book two. Yeah, it's a great place to leave it for this week with a glance toward the beginning of, of book three. You've kind of introduced some of the themes we're going to take up as Aristotle begins to give his own positive account of regime. So we'll look forward to that next week. But we're going to wrap up the show this week uh, with the grade book, uh, bringing the grade book back after a number of weeks projecting the NFL. So what we're going to do is, as we go back to the grade book, uh, and you know, I mentioned it's daughter's birthday, oldest daughter's birthday. We, you and I, both have um, a daughter who's going to turn ten this year, 
And, and so thinking about celebrating round number birthdays, I'm not going to mention the possibility that one of us may have a round number birthday coming up pretty soon, but what do you do for those big birthdays, right? The, you know, the 10, the 20, the, 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 the 40, the 50, um, and grade, grade three options here. Okay. So number one, surprise party. Uh, we did this for my mom's 40th birthday. That was a, a very memorable event. We had just moved back to Washington state where she had grown up. And so we were able to invite a lot of people that she hadn't seen in, in a number of years. And, and so that was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, we've done some other surprise parties over the years, but that's the one that especially stands out in my mind. What do you think, Dave? Uh, should Katie throw you a surprise party? It's a risky proposition. I, I think that you, you better get that party correct and you better get the people who are going to be there correct. Yeah. So you, you really have to know that other person to have a surprise party. And I think the second problem is that we live in an age where surprises aren't so many, much surprises anymore, right? That you, you, you tend to know at least a month in advance that, that something's going on because you, you see things across uh, your screen. So um, I give a surprise part. I think there's good intention there. Uh, I think a surprise party is, is about a B, but it has a risk of not necessarily being a fail, but it, it could. I, like my, my wife does not like surprises. Uh, okay. my, my wife is, she, she will say, this is what I want for my birthday. Yeah. And this is what I want for Christmas. And I've tried a couple of times to, to kind of use my own opinion as to what I think you know, a nice dress <laughs> is. Right. It rarely works. So do yeah. what you're told. So when she turns 30, you'll have to. When she turns 30. Else, right? Exactly. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I'm with you. I, you know, I enjoy the surprise part of the surprise party. We had a surprise party for my parents, 50th anniversary that my sister organized and, and it really came off, you know, they were really surprised and it was fun and it was, you know, so that like, that's, that's in my mind, the ideal there, but uh, as you say, not, not easy and not for everybody. So I think, you know, for me, that's probably not my prime choice um, when I've got a, a round number birthday coming up. So I'd give that probably a B minus. All right. Second option. How about a special trip, family present, you know, just kind of take the celebration up a notch. Well, beginning of October, we're all heading to Galveston, Texas, and we're going to watch the Patriots play the Texans. We got an Airbnb that I don't know if I can afford, but I'm thinking, <laughs> well, it's my birthday. So um, I'm really looking forward to it. I, and I think that uh, it'll, it'll be neat. And uh, one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to it is that so many people are coming from across the country that I haven't seen uh, for a while and to get them all together will be really neat. So special trips, family presence. I, I, I think that's good, you know, especially as people kind of get into their, their older years as, as I'm tending to right now. So I, I give that one an A. I guess my invitation got lost in the mail. No, check with the post office that's, on that. That's exactly you're a busy man in New York City. I didn't think I could pull you out of that, you know, but um, listen, no, you better be, be beware. So that may be on, the, on its way. So. <laughs> no, I, you know, that, that's, that's something I enjoy. Uh, a few years ago, I asked for money for my birthday so I could do something with each of the kids and with my wife and, you know, $5 to take our youngest daughter at that point to McDonald's to buy French fries. You know, she was two years old. And so that was the kind of thing she was up for. And $20 to take my oldest daughter ice skating and baseball game with my son. You know, so, you know, that, that was kind of fun. And, you know, when you have a, a family kind of thing that, that to me is, is, is a good time. So I'm going to give that an, an A. All right. Last low key it. 
So, no way. I, 29, I think, uh, 50, 51, 52, right? Just kind of keep plodding on in the same direction. I don't agree. I, I think that those round numbers are important. I think that um, when you think just in terms of decade terms about you know how human beings grow, I mean, even, even within the Bible, right? They have reference to the years. Numbers matter and, and certain anniversaries matter. So huh, I, I think that, uh, no, it's not just another birthday. Um, low key, it gets a fail. Okay. Now it's about to turn 50. So low key getting a fail, you know, there may be some bias there, but (laughs) hype it up. It's a half century. That's right. So an an F minus for low keying it, at least in 2021. Okay. Well, yeah, my my next birthday will be 49. So that's not quite as significant a moment. This is my usual approach. You know, nice little family dinner is great. My wife is a great cook and she makes homemade pizza or, chimichangas or, you know, some other special dish and, and just hanging out with the kids. And my parents will often come for a birthday or around the time of a birthday. And that to me is, is a pretty good celebration. So I'm, I'm going to give that one a, a good grade. That's probably a B plus. Um, and I, I can see when it comes time for the, you know, the big numbers, maybe you want to do a little more than that, but I'm, I'm generally content with the kind of low key family celebration. So you're saying that if I, I buy tickets in, in January of 2023 for a Buffalo Bills Patriots playoff game, that Mac Jones is <laughs> that you will attend the game for your 50th. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to necessarily turn that down. Right. Okay, uh, so good. yeah, no, I, I appreciate the, the offer. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Thank you as always for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget, you can contact us at democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. And we'll look forward to talking to you again next week.